Okay, well, we have been, as a body, we have been, uh, I've been teaching and I've been asking everyone to read on a weekly basis Philippians 3. Now, I, we had a kind of interruption in that series last week when we, um, you know, because it was Mother's Day and I felt like the Lord wanted me to teach on the mother's heart and how that's God's heart. <laughs> but uh, I want to go back into Philippians 3 today. And I felt like there was something specific that God wanted me to bring out. Now, Philippians 3 is a, is just powerful, in my opinion. Uh, I think it's one of those scriptures that you can read, you know, over and over and over again and really not, not milk all the milk <laughs> and not eat all the meat. Um, let me get set up here, sorry. Um, so I want to refresh you in your remembrance to actually be reading that. Who started reading that, by the way? Did somebody actually, did you guys start doing that? Did anybody here start doing it? Okay. A little bit? Well, let's pick it back up, okay? And uh, it's okay. I'm sorry, my computer's doing a million things besides what I want it to do. Okay. And I'm going um, to read it this morning in the Amplified Version. because I like the way it amplifies. And we're going to start, um, normally I start a little further down, but I'm going to go ahead and start right there in um, verse 1 today. And um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, just the Apostle Paul and what Philippians 3 is really, it's such a powerful chapter, what it really says is possible for us. Okay, in verse 1 it says, For this reason, because I preach that you are thus built up together, I, Paul, am the prisoner of Jesus the Christ for the sake and on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, first of all, in that very first verse right there, Paul is actually saying that he is, (laughs) he's not in bondage, all right? He's a free man, but as a free man, he is the servant or in bondage to Jesus. And really, it's really about the call of God on Paul's life. Um, you know, Paul was, how many of you know, the apostle to the Gentiles? And how many of you know he was a Pharisee? Meaning, if it had been up to him, he would not have probably wanted to go to the Gentiles. He probably would have gone, wanted to go to the Pharisees. Right? Now, the Pharisees are what kind of people? They're religious people. Hypocritical people, right? Huh? Well, Jesus called them dogs. But, I mean, really, I mean, the Pharisees, huh? They were Jews. They were Jews. They were of his own, his own race, right? And, and so they were, they were the chosen ones, if you will, God's people, right? They were the ones that interpreted the law, right? And, determined what righteousness was, right? What right standing with God was, right? These are all descriptions of Pharisees. But how do you know Paul was not called to those people? He wasn't called to them. He was called to the Gentiles. And how did the Pharisees think about the Gentiles? Didn't just not like them, right? They were unclean. They didn't associate with them, right? They totally rejected them. They had nothing to do with them. They were like the outcasts, you know, right? Right, so no association with Gentiles whatsoever. 
they consider that even just association with them to be sin. Correct? Okay. So these are two groups of people that would have nothing to do with one another. Right? Okay. Now he says, I just want to talk through this. In verse 2 he says, Assuming that you heard of the stewardship of God's grace, his unmerited favor that was entrusted to me, to dispense to you for your benefit... Now, his is at the, he's talking to the church at Ephesus, by the way. All right. Now, is the church at Ephesus a Gentile church? Mm-hmm. It's a Gentile church. Okay. So he's talking to a Gentile church. I just want to kind of get the context here. And he's basically telling that I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ for the sake of you, behalf of you Gentiles, right? And then he's saying in verse 2 that I'm assuming that you've heard of this. You've heard of this call that I have and the stewardship of this grace that I carry that it's for your benefit, all right? That I've been called to you Gentiles, I've been called to you church at Ephesus, and that this is something that I'm stewarding, okay? I mean, there's a bunch you can just get out of that, you know, that God decides what you're called to, and that that call is something that we steward, right? And that it's a relationship, if you will, almost as a bondservant to Jesus. That What does it mean when you are... A prisoner of someone. They pretty much own you, right? They tell you when, who decides when you eat? Right, right? You're, you're like a, you're a prisoner, right? So you think, well, that doesn't sound like a very good thing. I mean, here we are called to freedom, but there's something about Paul and his call to the Gentiles. Well, he wasn't really operating in free will. He let go of his free will and he became a servant. He became a prisoner to Jesus. And to a degree became a prisoner to the call of God on his life. Now, you know, a lot of times we talk about destiny and we talk about calls and we talk about a lot of things, but we don't think about it in terms of that, do we? No, we think about it as some kind of free choice that you can pick up or decide to do or turn down, or right? But that's not how the Apostle Paul talked about his call to the Gentiles. That's not the relationship he had with the call of God in his life. And how many of you know Paul endured great hardships? Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so a lot of times we want the glamour of a call, but we don't want the cost of a call. And let me tell you, there's both. (laughs) There's both. You know, um, and he says this, verse 3, he's still talking about the stewardship of the grace that's on his life. He says, and that the mystery secret was made known to me, and I was allowed to comprehend it by direct revelation, as I already briefly wrote to you. When you read this, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now listen to, the, listen to what Paul is actually stewarding, because it's, an, it's, it's an, an unbelievable thing that Paul is stewarding. He's stewarding the revelation of what actually happened at the cross. He's stewarding the revelation of Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is stewarding this thing that has never been revealed, not ever in history, not ever through any of the prophets. He's carrying unbelievable revelation, right? It says here in verse 5 that this mystery, okay, the revelation of of the gospel, was never disclosed to human beings in past generations. As it has now been revealed to his holy apostles, his consecrated messengers, and the prophets by the Holy Spirit. 
And it is this. I'm in Ephesians 3. I meant to go to Philippians 3, but this is so good. I'm just going to stay with it for a second. It says, verse 6, it is this, that the Gentiles are now to be fellow heirs with the Jews, members of the same body and joint partakers sharing in the same divine promise in Christ through their acceptance of the glad tidings of the gospel. Now, I'm going to read here for a minute because this really does set up Philippians 3 really well. It says, for of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's free grace. Now, let me just say this. As a minister of the gospel, you are made a minister of the gospel by God's free grace. Right? A lot of times people think you earn your way into being a minister. Right? But you don't. You do not earn your way there. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a grace. It's a free gift of grace that God puts on you. And it says there, which was bestowed on me by the exercise, the working and all of its effectiveness of his power. Verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all saints, God's consecrated people, this grace, this favor, this privilege was granted and graciously entrusted to proclaim to the Gentiles the unending, boundless, fathomless, incalculable, and exhaustless riches of Christ, wealth which no human being could have searched out. Okay, now I'm going to read that last verse again. Paul's saying, I don't deserve this. Paul is saying, I did not deserve this call. I am the least of all saints, but it's through God's grace. He granted and graciously entrusted to me this call to proclaim to the Gentiles, right? The unending, listen to this, boundless, fathomless, incalculable, and exhaustless riches of Christ, wealth which no human being could have searched out. Now I'm going to go back to verse 3, and it says, And the mystery, the secret, was made known to me, and I was allowed to comprehend it by direct revelation. Okay? So here, Paul was an apostle not because he walked with the twelve during Jesus' ministry. Paul was an apostle by direct encounter and by direct revelation from God. Right? And here he's just describing a little bit about his call, about his relationship with his call, and really what his call actually is and what he got by direct revelation, which is a revelation of the riches that are in Christ, the riches of God, this fat, unfathomable, this boundless, this, this, this treasure, which is Jesus, this treasure, which is the gospel, this treasure, which is this mystery. And can you imagine being the only person on the planet who got to know this? And that it was your assignment to explain it. And your assignment was to explain it not even to God's people. Not even to the people that it was really promised to. These are, these are Gentiles. They don't know the first thing about what it means to be ceremonially clean or unclean. or They don't know all the prophecies that came down from the generations in the Old Testament. You've got to explain the glorious riches of Christ to a people that weren't even looking for it. Right? And the way you describe your call is that you are a prisoner to it. 
Well, actually, you're a prisoner to the one who you're actually revealing. Okay, so listen, you're sitting on information that nobody else has. Even the 12 didn't get it. They didn't understand what was happening when it was happening. You can read in other epistles where Peter's writing about the things that Paul writes, and he's like, yes, they are hard to understand. You know, I mean, the other 12 were trying to catch up with the revelation that Paul was carrying. And this revelation, by the way, was worth dying for. This revelation of, let me say this, of the goodness of God of the unmerited favor of God towards a people who were judged undeserving, who were judged the outcasts, who were judged the rejects of of religious society. Paul was... Paul was sent to the untouchables. Hey, they were untouchable guys. I mean, this is the people that today are the transvestites of our society. These are the homosexuals of our society. These are the prostitutes. These are the, you know, whatever we would consider, whatever that would be, right? The secular people, whatever that would be, right? That was Paul's assignment, right? And the very system that he was raised in was against that. You understand that? But he had to come to the place in his own life here in Ephesians where he says, although I'm the least of all the saints. Now, this is not where he started out. Paul did not start out with an opinion of himself being the least, the least, okay? Let's go over to Philippians chapter 3, and let's talk about Paul's pedigree for a moment. Because the reality of it is, Paul had to be greatly humbled. Because at the heart of the pharisaical system is self-righteousness. It's a righteousness that comes through your performance, specifically your performance against a a set of standards or, let me say this, a moral law. Can I say moral law? Were the Ten Commandments a moral law? Okay. And then, of course, you had ceremonial law. You had a lot of different parts of the law. but, But overall, it was about a system of righteousness, meaning if you followed the rules, right, if you followed the rules, you were righteous, And if you didn't follow the rules, you were unrighteous. Matter of fact, the temple system and the sacrificial system was all about restoring you back to a place where you were clean versus being ceremonial unclean. Okay, so there's this idea of clean and unclean, and it was based upon the law. And the law determined whether you were clean or unclean. There were clean animals and unclean animals. There were clean people and unclean people, right? And there was a whole system set up to get you clean, right? But the problem with the system is that it never makes you clean. Right? It never really makes you clean. It's a system uh, that really 
points to the futility of you trying to be clean. And that there's only one clean one. All right? Okay. So Philippians 3 is um, kind of a, it's kind of like Paul's resume. All right? And it talks about um, all the things that he had on his resume that should have made him righteous before God. Right? And it says here, for the rest, brethren, Philippians chapter 3, delight yourselves in the Lord and continue to rejoice that you are in him. Uh, to keep writing of this over and over of the same things is not irksome to me. It's a, it's a precaution for your safety. And then he tells you to, he tells you to look out for something. He says, look out for those dogs, those Judaizers, those legalists. Look out for the mischief makers. So let me just say this. Religion and strife go hand in hand. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Let me say it a different way. Look out for those who are concerned with outward appearances. For we Christians are the true circumcision who worship God in spirit and by the spirit of God and exult in glory and pride ourselves in Jesus Christ and put no confidence or dependence on what we are in the flesh and on outward appearances or outward privileges and physical advantages and external appearances. Okay. The heart of the religious spirit is not looking bad. You don't ever want to look bad, all right? So you hide it, which is the very definition of being hypocritical, okay? And it looks a little different in the church today, but it's still, the, the spirit of religion is alive and well. It didn't die or, or find its end over in Judaism, right? Um and this, when he said, look out for those dogs. Okay, I'm going to say it a different way. Look out for the spirit of religion. Look out. Paul is saying, look out. Be on the lookout for the spirit of religion. You guys, this country has got a massive problem with the spirit of religion. It is a massive, massive Massive problem. Guys, we sit in a religious day in the church of America. It is a religious day. And I know so many of us have been swimming in it for so many years. We were raised in it, right? That we don't even know we're swimming in it, you know? But Paul actually said that you're to look out for them, right? And then he says, listen, verse 4, he's saying you can't rely on the flesh. You can't rely on people's ability to be good. And you can't look at anybody, anybody, guys, and say they're good. I don't care how good they look. They have no righteousness apart from Christ. Amen. 
I don't care how much they look like they've got it together. I don't care what, how big of an organization they are leading. I don't care what kind of feats they are doing in the name of Jesus. They have absolutely no righteousness apart from the one who died and is righteous. Okay. And so what we do is we, I mean, I remember, I mean, I remember, man, I have, I mean, I remember one time. I was in worship, and I don't even know where this came from. I was in worship, and I mean, this thing's just coming up out of my heart. It was so random to me, but how many of you know, sometimes in worship, the stuff's in your heart just comes up, and you don't even know what it is or where it came from. It just is there, you know, and a lot of times you're an observer of your own heart, and I was in worship saying this to God. I'm no Heidi Baker. I'm no Heidi Baker. I'm no Heidi Baker. And I just kept saying it over and over and over and over again. And in that same encounter with God, I was standing there before him with this crown on my head, bent down before him, and he was adjusting my crown. And it was the this terrible feeling of unrighteousness. Just a horrible feeling of unrighteousness. Just, I'm no Heidi Baker. I'm no Heidi Baker. I'm no Heidi Baker. It was so random, though. I, I mean, I, I felt it. It was real in worship. But it wasn't like if you would if you would have talked to me before worship, that was on my mind. And honestly, when I came out of the encounter, I don't even know that I really could reconnect with it right away. I mean, it just it was an experience that I had. The next morning, I remember getting up and coming into the shower, and he said, Are you under the illusion that Heidi Baker's a better person than you? Are you under the illusion that she has a form of self-righteousness? And are you under the illusion that I'm using her because she's a good person? And I said, well, now that you're asking, I thought she was a pretty darn good person. (laughs) Yes, indeed, I do. I think she's a saint. I think she's the Mother Teresa of our day. He said, do you know how long it took me to get her to be dependent upon me? I said, well, of course not. How would I know that? (laughs) He said, there is no one righteous but me. And the sooner that illusion is rooted up out of your heart, the sooner I can use you. Verse 4, though for myself I have at least grounds to rely on the flesh, if any other man considers that he has or seems to have reason to rely on the flesh and his physical and outward advantages, I still have more. So here's what Paul's saying. In the flesh, I am the most qualified person. I am the most qualified person in the flesh to be doing what I'm doing. That's what Paul is actually saying. He's about to give you his resume of why he's qualified to be an apostle. Okay? Now, I know we don't ever do this in the church. <laughs> we don't ever size people up based upon outward appearances or what we, we think qualifies them to do what they're doing. Right? 
And then as leaders, you learn to hide because that's the only way people will follow you. Because if you show your weaknesses or you show any faults or whatever, well, then you're unqualified. When the only thing that qualifies you is him. And what we end up with is a disgenuine culture where we all pretend to be something we're not. Right? And if we ever, if we ever let our hair down, right? Well, then it's pretty much rejection city. You go to Facebook jail. Okay, you go to Facebook jail. You get defriended, unfriended, blocked. Whatever it is you get, right? Right? Unfollowed. You know, that's just the secret way. That's the unfollowing is just the secret, you know, secret Facebook jail, secret rejection, right? And I'm just saying, as people who are called to represent Jesus, that is not who he is. He is a come-as-you-are kind of guy. He's a come-as-you-are, stay-as-long-as-you-want, out-where-you're-welcome out kind of guy, Right? He's not looking at his watch, getting tired of your company, right? But Paul had a lot of reason, you know, and then he just goes on and says all of these things. He says, circumcised when I was eight days old of the race of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew and the son of Hebrews. As to the observance of the law, I was at the party of the Pharisees. That's like, you know, the best fraternity at the college, right? It's like the top fraternity, right? It's hard to get into. Right? And it says, as to my zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. And by the law standard of righteousness, its supposed justice, uprightness, and right standing with God, I was proven to be blameless and no fault was found with me. So let me just say it a different way. Paul was pretty much perfect. He could walk around with opinion of himself because the law, he was found blameless. So I am blameless. Right? Now, how many times do we do that? Now, I know it doesn't look like that, but we find no fault in ourselves. I'm not to blame. But whatever former things I, that I might have been gained to me, I have come to consider as one combined loss for Christ's sake. So he's saying... Everything that was here on my resume, all of these accomplishments, all of this pedigree, right? All of these things that got me into all of the Ivy League schools, right? Every, I was from the right family, right? I had the right recommendations, right? I had the lot in life to be respected in society. I mean, you're talking about this is the, this is the, this is the person to be if you're in the Israel, if you're an Israelite, right? Paul is who that's who you want to be, right? But Paul is saying that identity, that resume, I pretty much count it to be trash. I say all of that is just, I mean, down, down a little further, he calls it poo-poo, right? You know, he says, for whatever things that I might have had that were gained to me, I've come to consider as one combined loss for Christ's sake. Yes, furthermore, I count everything as loss compared to what? 
It says the possession of the priceless privilege, the overwhelming preciousness, the surpassing worth, and the supreme advantage of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And it says, and of progressively becoming more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, of perceiving and recognizing and understanding him more fully and clearly. For his sake, I have lost everything and consider it to be mere rubbish, trash, Refuse, refuse, dregs, in order that I may gain Christ, the anointed one. In verse 9, and that I may actually be found and known as in him, not having any self-achieved righteousness that can be called my own, based on my obedience to the law's demands. Or let me say it this way, to the, my obedience to a moral law my obedience to a performance-based system, okay? It says, but possessing genuine righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the anointed one, and truly right standing with God, which comes from God by saving faith. So this is such a beautiful picture of two kinds of righteousness. And it has to do... Chris, for me, I just need to get something. This is going to die. Um, so it has to do with two ways of getting your self-esteem. Okay? One is Christ-esteem, and one is self-esteem. Self-esteem. Now, self-esteem is a topic I actually spend a lot of time on in my ministry. Because here's what I know. You can't get into the promised land with a grasshopper image. And what do I mean by that? You can't get into the you cannot get into the promised land feeling bad about yourself. Boy, you better hear me. Right? But the whole world is about teaching you to feel bad about yourself. And it's not just the world, it's religion. Because there's two systems, right? There's, the, there's the, the kingdom of Herod or the political systems or the kingdoms of this world, right? And then there's the religious system. And you think about the two systems that were at work in Jesus' day. There was the leaven of Herod and there was the leaven of the Pharisees. And both of that, both leavens, right? The leaven of the world and the leaven of the Pharisees are actually the same leaven. And it's a performance-based leaven. The world is performance-based, whether you want to believe that or not. You know, I got to go to Kim's graduation on Friday, which was so cool. I mean, it was awesome to go and get to see it and everything. But man, that that religious that that education system, right? I mean, that's a performance-based system. I mean, I they were just talking about what their dissertations titles were, and I could part I couldn't hardly pronounce some of them. Right? I mean, just, just the title of the dissertation. I mean, these are some brainiac people, you know what I mean? Going for their doctorates in all kinds of fields. And it was just like, whoa, right? And they all have their gear on. Like, it's like a, it's like a really bad Catholic mass. You know what I mean? Like, they got their robes and their things and their, you know, I'm not necessarily an academic, a person from academia, you know, so I don't know all the different colors and the tassels and the, you know, the weirdo hats they wear. 
Oh, it all means something. And you don't get your tassel and your robe and your sash and your hat and you are a regent and a, I mean, it's got its own language. I mean, it's a system. And it's a, it's a merit-based, performance-based system, right? I mean, I mean, think about this. Think about just the real estate market, right? Think about how the price of a home is all about what that home has. A two-bedroom to a three-location. And I mean, I'm telling you, like, if you actually go build a new home and you work with a builder or something, like, if you ever went to, like, a place where they build, like, a whole division of new homes, and let's say you were going to pick out from a menu of stuff, like, literally, it's like a price menu, like, at a restaurant. Well, if you want a granite countertops, it's $5,000 more. If you want this, it's $4,000 more, right? It's it's a system, right? How about just, I mean, I mean, in anything, boats, what about sports? Like sports are expensive to play, like golf clubs. You know what I mean? And or if you go like on a cruise, right? You got the you got the you got the cheap seats, right? You got the cheap cabins, and then you go all the way up, right? Or even if you go to a sporting event, you got the cheap seats, you got the box. Did you see what the world is a performance-based system? And it's a mammon-driven system. Right? So money equals self-worth. Power equals self-worth. And if you have money and power and you have, you know, 3.2 kids and a home and you have um, a two-car garage and you have these things, well, then you know what? You've arrived. You're somebody. It's called the American dream. Well, it's the pride of life, but it's a system to grant good feelings about yourself. But for most of us, right? I mean, there's always a better grade. There's always a better house. There's always a younger wife, right? There's always a better neighborhood. There's always a better job. There's always a bigger title. There's always a better grant. There's always some, there's always something you could strive to. I mean, at what point do you actually ever arrive? And whose standard do you actually make it on? Because there's never enough. You know, in high school, I was such an idiot. And not, not that I'm that much smarter than I am then, but I think I am just know a few more things. But I, I mean, I was such an excessive party animal, right? College years, all that stuff. And I used to have this motto that was so stupid. But sometimes I think about it, and it's, it's actually true about only one thing. And that would be the presence of God. But in every other realm... It's the stupidest thing you can say. And it would say, it was it. Too much is never enough. How about that coming from a motto? A life mantra. Yeah, but when you turn it to Jesus, here's what he says. I count it all lost compared to the possession of the priceless privilege, the overwhelming preciousness. He calls it the supreme advantage of knowing Jesus. See, that world system, you guys, is a false place to arrive. It's a false thing to aspire to. And it's not that there's anything wrong with any of those kids. I mean, any of those kids, any of those things. I mean, you know, there's nothing wrong with 3.2 kids, right? There's nothing wrong with a two-car car. There's nothing inherently wrong about things. It's things as an identity, which is shallow and empty and unfulfilling. 
Okay. And religious, let's talk about the leaven of, the leaven of, um, uh, you know, the Pharisees for a moment. Because see, ultimately, the religious get their feelings, good feelings about themselves from being good. Right? Being on the right side of goodness. Right? And truthfully, we were made to feel good about ourselves. We weren't created by God for low self-esteem. We weren't created to think poorly of ourselves and think that that's humility. That is not humility when you just think have a poor self-image. Right? That's not... A, that's, first of all, that's, that, there's nothing more prideful because it's, it's your opinion. It's your opinion. It's not God's opinion. It's your opinion. And your opinion of yourself is supposed to be God's opinion of you. Once and for all, God's opinion of you is the only opinion that, 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 that you should be listening to. But here's the deal. Your opinion is the one that counts. Because if you aren't in agreement with God, your opinion always is the one that's gonna, you're gonna follow. It's just who's, you know, what, how are you forming all of that? And this is a massive revelation of Paul's transition from a form of godliness. <laughs> Meaning, and by the way, y'all, it looks good. But you know how it's not good? You better hear me because this is going to really shake you. But I have to say it. If it stinks to sinners. If it stinks to sinners, it's not real goodness. No, it's beyond good. Because it is the litmus test of Jesus. Because let's talk about who was attracted and who was repelled. And if sinners are not attracted to what you're doing, it's religious. Oh, you better hear me, and I'm going to get louder. Somebody has to. Because we have a real problem in this country. And we actually think that we are representing Jesus. And we are repelling sinners. And nobody even seems to care breaks my heart. And God forbid. I mean, we've gotten to a place where we don't even recognize Jesus. And I'm telling you, if it's repelling them, it's not him. It is very easy to say where Jesus is because sinners are repenting. And I don't mean they're repenting like we think they're repenting. It's the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. It is not the rules of God. The Apostle Paul had to come out of that system. He was killing Christians. He was religious beyond religion. Right? And he had to come down to a place where he identified with the worst of the worst. I'm the least of all the saints. Like, I barely got in by the hair of my chinny-chin-chin, 
right? If it wasn't for Jesus, I wouldn't be in. Well, how, how do y'all know that's how it all is? That's the truth. If it wasn't for Jesus, none of us would be in. But it's really, I know that, I mean, I, how do I know? I know this because when I surrendered my life to God, I had to come out of a whole bunch of stuff, right? Which we do. We come out of a whole bunch of stuff when we, when we, when we, we know the Lord, right? Because why? The world system isn't it. It's definitely not it, right? But guess what? Coming into a religious system is not it either. How many of you know a lot of times we get into a ditch just trying to avoid the thing we got out of? Right? We get into a ditch just because, you know, and we think religion is better than the world. Because at least it looks good. But we have to realize that it was what looked good that killed Jesus. What looked good actually crucified. They didn't recognize him. They were good and didn't recognize good. And if you think this isn't you, it's you. The fact that you think it's not you proves that it's not that's you. That's the truth, you guys. I am preaching the God. I am preaching the truth. And until we can wash transvestites' feet, we have no right to speak into their lives. That is the cold, hard truth. Because guess what Jesus does? He gets down there in the dirt. He gets down there in the poo-poo. He gets down there in the ugliest, untouchable, most disgusting, most upsetting, most refining, like, you know, refined people would never... That is who he is. That is actually who he is. That is who he is and that's how he acts. He did not pick a single apostle from the good people. Not a single messenger from the qualified. Not a single one. Because they had, they were, he is upside down. He does things. It is not, it is not from the leadership seminar. (laughs) He picks the unlikely candidates. Why? Because he's confronting something so ugly in humanity that it takes something foolish to confound it. It takes something weak to show what's powerful. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen in this country. But the way we've been praying for revival is coming. It's not coming the way you think. It's not coming the way you think. It's going to be messy. And it's going to offend their religious mind. 
It is going to offend the religious mind. And that's how we'll know it's Jesus is in it. You know, my heart has always been to be a place where we could detox from all that. You know, because it is exhausting trying to be good. It's exhausting hiding, trying to pretend you're somewhere you're not. You know, if God doesn't change you, you're not changing. God bless you. I love you enough just to tell the truth. Like you might do some behavior modification, but you know what? Put you in the right circumstances. What's in your heart's going to come up? And God is not after right behavior. He is not after right behavior. He is really not after right behavior. He is after a family and he is after love. 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 love. And you guys, we are starved for it. We are starved for it. To varying degrees. But we are starved for it. And we sure can't give what we haven't received. And I'll say this, until we come to the place where it's not low self-esteem for the sake of low self-esteem, but it is to a place where you come and say, man, if it wasn't for Jesus, (laughs) right? Because, I mean, I'll tell you, God will reveal self-righteousness in you. And it's just any kind of independence. It's any kind of place where you're relying on self. And, you know, that I'm no Heidi Baker experience was pretty impressive. I mean, pretty, you know, she's transforming a nation. She's brought a whole nation to Jesus. There's, I mean, just what God is doing through her. And let me say this, in spite of her. I mean, get it out of our minds that God is using people. And let me say this, in that way where there's massive people just turning to Jesus. And culture being transformed. Because they're good. And I'll say this. If we continue down the road of trying to legislate Christianity in this nation, we will lose this nation. If we continue to go down the road of trying to legislate Christianity in this nation, we will lose this nation. Because it doesn't come that way. It comes only one way. Love. Every time you've tried to legislate religion, that's what you get. You might get you might get religion, but you will be wrong if you think Jesus is in that. It's not the kingdom. His kingdom is not of this world. Serve. And and I don't mean just serve at your church, serve at your ministry. 
I mean actually serve sinners. Serve, serve someone who doesn't know Jesus without an agenda. Without an agenda. Without an agenda. Just because they're lovable. Just because they're worthy of love. Just because. Without any agenda. Just because. But Shalise, there's so many things you think of when you, when you, I mean, there's just so many, but you know what? For years, I didn't speak to some of my family. They were actually my husband's family because, and I got to go right at noon, so I'm going to let Jason close this out today because I got a little girl's recital that I have to meet. My girls are having a recital today, but for years, I didn't speak to part of my family because I was best friends with them when I was in the world. And when I got saved, I just, it was like my relationship with them. I just, honestly, it was hard to be in relationship with them because they reminded me of who I was. Now, I would not have said that. I would have had a lot of reasons why I wasn't in relationship with them, mainly because of the way they acted. Because they weren't believers and so I had all this stuff around why they were crazy. You know, just all demonic. Lots of demonic stuff. There was a lot of demonic stuff. Maybe it is. What in the world does that have to do? How does that let me off the hook that I'm still to love them? And oh, by the way, if that demonic stuff is bringing stuff out in me that doesn't look like Jesus, well, maybe that's a blessing. Maybe I can actually see it and repent because I am the one that's filled with the Holy Ghost. And so I eventually apologized. I actually stayed up all night with with them one night with my sister-in-law and I just apologized I said I have been the worst representation of Jesus here I am surrender my life to this guy and now you look at me and this is the way he's supposed to act towards you and I just apologized I said this is horrible I'm so sorry and over you know the course of a couple years God's really been has totally restored that relationship and you know what he's told me to do learn from them now granted they don't they don't they don't go to church They don't profess to be Christians. But he's actually telling me to learn from them. Listen, I ask them questions like, how does it feel? Because we, you know, there's other people in the family that are, you know, evangelical, very strong Christians. And they just tell me how it feels. They tell me, I mean, I'm, I'm learning. I'm learning what it's like to be rejected by us. You're saying you got all that out of, out of Philippians 3? I did. But I know this. I know I, we need to repent. We need to repent. And let's not be a church or let's not be a group of people who come here on Sundays and and worship God and read our Bibles and do all of these wonderful spiritual disciplines and we do all these things and that we have no contact at all with people that don't know Jesus. And we have our own little Christian bubble that we've created because we think it's safe. And meanwhile, the world is lost. And then we get mad at them for doing things that lost people do. 
but we've pulled all of our relationships out of there. We're not in relationship with anybody that doesn't look just like us. Why? Because they threaten us, whether we admit it or not. They bring stuff up in us. They trigger us. They remind us of who we used to be. They, we call everything demonic. And I just know that that's hypocritical. It's actually hypocritical. Jason's like, oh, no, you didn't just leave me with that. <laughs> I do have to go. But, you know, Jason's going to close us out. And I mainly just want, I want us to remember the most loving encounters that we've had with Jesus. The places where we failed the biggest. Have you ever had encounters with Jesus when you've just failed big time? Like you just felt horrible and you just... Man, you just thought, I'm like Peter who just denied Jesus three times. Like, I don't even deserve to be a saint. You know, you just, you just, you just fail. And if you haven't failed in a long time, you need to do something risky. <laughs> but, you know, you just blew it. You, you blew it big time. Like, you just blew it. And then Jesus just comes in the sweetest voice and in the nicest way. And through, he just encourages you and keeps you going. You know, I mean, he is an encourager of men. And I'll say this, when someone feels loved, real transformation can actually happen. You know, and I can't think of anything more tormenting than to struggle like this whole thing that's gone on this week with your gender. I think that must be one of the most tormenting, horrible things to have to struggle with, where you don't even know if you're a man or a woman. Like, I, the depth of that kind of a struggle internally, I mean, the suicide rate is out of the, I mean, you just, you can understand why. I mean, it's just, that's, that's the, like the core of who you are. That's just not even, what am I supposed to be when I grow up? That's like, what clothes do I put on in the morning? Like, do I stand or sit when I go to the bathroom? I mean, these are things that we just, we cannot comprehend that depth of struggle. You cannot comprehend the depth of that struggle. So don't dare judge that. Like we know, okay, well that's not, what do you know about it actually? If you don't know anyone who struggled with it, like we know God didn't, he's not the author of that. Okay, he's not the author of that. He's also not the author of divorce. He's also the author of gluttony. He's also not the author of gossip. He's also not the author of a whole lot of things that you and I partake in every single day. Now granted, does it look that bad? No. But does it smell that bad? Yeah. If we don't get involved at a relational level, how is it ever going to get fixed? Now you're like, oh my gosh, Liz, you're saying, I don't know what I'm saying. I'm just saying the approach that we're this Facebook strife religion and if I was a transvestite you think the, you know where the last place I would go would be a church or to the Christian 
people on my on my street. So I'm just being honest. Something's got to change. So, on that note, I'm going to go watch a bunch of 12-year-olds and 10-year-olds like tap dance and do ballet and love some people that don't know Jesus. Mingle with the non-Christian dance crew. <laughs>